This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Philippians, um, it has been a joy to walk through the four chapters of Philippians uh, with you guys over the past few weeks. And so we have come to chapter four today, um, which is about peace, the path to, to peace. So if you turn to Philippians chapter four, we're going to cover the whole chapter this morning. Philippians four and verses one through 23. If you'll follow along in your copy of, of God's word, the path to peace. Paul says, so then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, because once again you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's 
household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Father, we thank you for Philippians, this epistle of joy that we've been able to walk through over this last month. And we pray that today in this incredible closing chapter that you would speak to our hearts and that our hearts would be flooded with peace, that there would be peace in our relationships, that we would learn the relationship between internal peace and external peace. And Lord, how to, how to be at peace no matter what the circumstances are in our lives. How to have a contentment and a joy that transcends circumstances, that rises above circumstances because it's found in you. And so, Lord, help us to see you now. Give us a joy in you. Give us a satisfaction and a contentment in you. Lord, may Christ become bigger in our eyes so that our challenges and problems in life are put into perspective. Lord, help us to see you, to, you now. Help us to see Christ through the power of your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the things I love about uh, visiting Israel is the way that people greet one another in Israel. And, and when you're in Israel, you quickly learn how to do it. Like everybody else, you just greet people by saying the word shalom, which means peace in Hebrew. And, you know, in, in the kind of world that we're living in, that's a beautiful greeting in and of itself, just to greet people with the word peace, right? Shalom. But the Hebrew word shalom carries a deeper meaning than just the ordinary word peace. Shalom really communicates an, an overall sense of, of wholeness, a, a sense of, of well-being. It's summed up in the words of the song that we just sung, it is well. And so when you say shalom to someone, you're saying, I, I want it to be well with you, deeply well, that you would be deeply at Peace. Chapter 4 of Philippians gives us the path to peace. And I want us to look at this in three different aspects this morning. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul is talking about being at peace with others. Peace with, with others. So let's check out verses 1 through 3. He says, So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters... My joy and crown, in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side. So throughout the letter to the Philippians, Paul has been calling the church at Philippi to unity and he's been talking about the kind of attitude and the kind of behavior that promotes unity. He's been calling them to humility. He's been calling them to putting others above your, yourself. So let's kind of, kind of walk back through uh, Philippians and see this theme as it comes out. Turn back to chapter 1 and let's look there 
beginning with verse 27. Paul says there in chapter 1 and verse 27, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ, then whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you that you are what? Standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. And then we saw in chapter 2, And verses 2 and following, he says, Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And then we saw in verses 6 through 11, as Paul unpacks the work of Christ, he he gives us a model of of humility as Christ, rather than seeking uh, his own self-interest, humbled himself, gave himself up for us to to die on a cross for us, the ultimate example of putting others First, and not seeking your own, your own, for your own self, self-interest. And that's the model of the kind of attitude that promotes togetherness and, and, and unity, that ultimate humility, that ultimate of putting others first that we see in Christ in, verses, in chapter 2 and verses 6 through 11. And then in chapter 2 and verse 14, He says, do everything without grumbling and arguing. So all the while, throughout the course of the letter, Paul has been sort of leading up to what he's going to say at the beginning of chapter 4 because he has learned that a couple of, of women in the church at Philippi, Euodia and Syntyche, are at odds with one another. And he knows that he's going to address this. And so he's kind of already laid the theological foundation for addressing it. And so now at the beginning of chapter 4, uh, he, is going to, he is going to address this. And he addresses these two, these two ladies. Now imagine this. This letter was read out loud to the whole congregation, probably gathered in a, in a house. They were just a small, they were small house church. And so <laughs> Euodia and Syntyche would have been sitting there <laughs> as this was being read. But Paul addresses them here, and he, and he says, I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to a- agree in the Lord. Um, now, you get the feeling here that this conflict is breaking Paul's heart. Because Euodia and Syntyche, are, they're great people. They're gospel people. In fact, he, what does he say about these two ladies in, 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 in verse 3? He says in verse 3 that these women have contended for the gospel at my side. They have been with me. They have served faithfully. They love the Lord. But they've got this conflict, and now they need to agree 
in the Lord. What does he say here to them in verse 2? He says, I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And that last prepositional phrase gives us the key to, to, to how they can agree. By putting the Lord first. Agree in the Lord. Put aside whatever this difference is that, that you know, whether it's personality related or somebody's feelings are hurt or, or whatever, right? You, you put that aside and you put Christ first. The cause of Christ needs to be higher, bigger than whatever it is that you're disagreeing about. So you need to agree in the Lord. I, I love this passage in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's in Prince Caspian where one of the kids in the story, Lucy, is talking with, with Aslan, the lion, who represents Christ. And so Lucy said, As, Aslan said to Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you were older, little one, answered he. Not because you are, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. You know what, as Christ gets bigger, in our affections, as he becomes number one, as Christ gets bigger, the stuff that we argue about with other people, that those things just get smaller and smaller. He needs to be bigger. Agree in the Lord, right? Put Christ first, put the gospel first. The gospel is higher, bigger. Put all this personal stuff, preferences, all that, put that aside. Right, you come together on something higher and bigger than you, and that's the Lord. That's the path to peace with others. Second, he talks about peace with self in verses four through nine. You know, many times our external, external conflict with other people is really stemming from an internal conflict within us. Because if we're not right inside Sometimes that can come out as anger, you know, or lashing out or being argumentative or, or whatever. It's, it's really coming from, from inside because something's not right within us. We need peace with self. So that's what he talks about next, beginning in verse 4. What does he say? Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice so he's just told Euodia and Syntyche in verse 2 that they need to agree in the Lord. And now he tells us in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. I love what George Mueller, uh, the, the great British Christian who built so many orphanages in his, in his day. Mueller said this in his, in his autobiography, the first, and great, first great and primary business every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. I've heard John Piper say the same thing. You know, the, my, first, my first priority every single morning <laughs> is to get myself happy in Jesus. In other words, before we face the day, let's, let's, let's determine that our joy and our satisfaction and our contentment in life is gonna be grounded in the Lord, right? Get yourself joyful in the Lord, and then you're, then you're, then you're ready to go out and face the, 
the, the day. Because look, no matter what's happening in our lives, no matter, no matter what our circumstances are, no matter what problems or challenges that we face, Christ is risen. I, I love, we looked last week at something uh, Tony, Tony Morita uh, said, you, you know, uh, the tomb is empty, the rest is just small stuff. Right, we've got the Lord. He is risen. We can rejoice in him. Gordon Fee says this, the wearing of black and the long face, which so often came to typify some later expressions of Christian piety, are totally foreign to the Pauline version. Paul, the theologian of grace, is equally the theologian of joy. Christian joy is not the temporal kind which comes and goes with one's circumstances. Rather, it is predicated altogether on one's relationship with the Lord. Now, when he says rejoice in the Lord always, Paul's not saying that Christians are not going to suffer. Remember, as he writes these words, he is suffering himself. He's in prison for the gospel. He's not saying that Christians are not going to suffer, but there can be a deep and abiding joy even in the midst of that. He expresses it well in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 10 when he says as apostles that we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Look at verse 5. He says, let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near that, that word, uh, graciousness, it could be translated as gentleness. It could be translated as reasonableness. It can be translated as a, uh, being considerate, right? It has the idea of a, of a gentle forbearance. Let your graciousness, your, your, your gentleness be known to everyone. And then he says, the Lord is near. Why does he say that? It's like, you know, he's been saying these two people have been in conflict with one another. Two people who love the Lord have been in conflict. And, and, and it's like Paul is, Paul is saying here, listen, be gentle with one another. The Lord is near. Christ could come back any day. You want him to find you fussing and fighting over these trivial matters when Christ should be the priority? No, be gentle, be considerate towards one another. Let your reasonableness be, be evident to all. The Lord is near, right? Jesus is coming. He could come any day. Put aside these, you know, the, this, this junk that you're preoccupied with and arguing about and agree in the Lord. Show forth that Christian gentleness and humility and love. And then verses 6 and 7, which I believe every Christian should commit to memory. He says, don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. D.A. Carson says this, this passage does not deny the existence of anxieties, it tells us what to do with them. What do you do with them? What do you do with worry? He says you turn worry into prayer. 
Luther said, you pray, let God worry. (laughs) Well, God's not worried. God can handle it. And so the moment that you feel a worry and an anxiety coming on, what are you to do as a child of God? You pass that on to the Lord. You give it to him, right? You turn that worry, that anxiety into prayer. And you put it in his hands and you leave it there. And when you've truly done that, then you can be at peace. There's a peace that surpasses all understanding that will guard your heart and your mind when you've truly given that to the Lord in prayer. What does he say in verse 8? Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on, think on these things. Do you realize that you can choose what you think about? Do you realize that you don't have to be a doormat and just, you know, allow all kinds of bad thoughts to just kind of run over you? No, the the Bible tells us to be, to take control of our thought lives. It says that we choose what we think about. We can choose to dwell on, to let our minds focus and think about things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and morally excellent and praiseworthy. Your mind matters. The battle begins in the mind. What are you filling your mind with? What are you choosing to dwell on? Take control of that. Verse 9. He says, Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. I love the way the NIV puts verse 9. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. You know, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, when Jesus has, has given, you know, this incredible message for three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus has basically told us, you know, here's, here's, here's how you are to live as a kingdom person. What does he say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, puts them into practice, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded on that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the wind blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. You remember a few weeks ago when we had several days of just clouds and wind and rain. We had a lot of days of rain this past week. But a few weeks ago, there was a lot of wind that was added to the rain. And you had all kinds of stuff that was was happening, and especially at the Outer Banks. And you may have seen this particular video. 
That's a life, Jesus says, that hears God's word and does not put it into practice. A life built on sand. The third thing that we see here in chapter four is peace with circumstances. Peace with circumstances. And we see that in verses 10 through 23. Let's check out verses 10 and 11. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. Wow, what a statement. What a statement here in verse 11. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. And then he unpacks that statement in verses 12 and 13. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, a lot of times we hear verse 13 quoted out of context. We see, we see it in all kinds of different ways. See it on t-shirts or, 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 or whatever. Um, you know, and I, you know, that's, that's great. I'm sure a lot of people do understand the context, but, but, but the, real con- the real context here within the flow of the passage, Paul's talking about contentment. When he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, what he's saying is, I've learned how to be content in all circumstances because of Christ who strengthens me. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The contentment is, is coming from the Lord. There's a great Puritan, Jeremiah Burroughs, who once wrote a book called The, the, the Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Well, you know what? If, if, if contentment was a rare jewel among the Puritans, <laughs> it's really a rare jewel in our culture, right? We are a discontented people. But true contentment, the secret to contentment, is found in the Lord. It's found in a relationship with him. Verse 13 is the key. It is the secret. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, contentment is found not in things not in the circumstances of your life all going the right way. It can't be found in another person. It can't be found in any position. Contentment has to be found in Jesus. 
It's in the, the Lord. It's in, it's in him. It's through your relationship with him. And, and one of the ways that we can liberate ourselves from a dependence and trying to find our contentment in things, which our culture is famous for, is to learn how to give And so he begins to talk about that. The Philippians had been exemplary in this regard. They had been a super generous, unselfish, giving congregation. And he commends them for that in verses 14 and following. He says, still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. Wow. Paul, in other words, Paul is saying here, listen, you guys have been so generous to share with me, and I'm super thankful for that. But I'm even more thankful for what you are getting, for what you are learning because of your generosity. Because Paul knows that Jesus says what in Acts 20 and verse 35. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus because he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so Paul is saying here that as you give, you're ultimately going to get the greatest blessing in that. And what you're going to discover in giving is that you can never outgive the Lord. Because what does he say here in verse 19? He says, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now look at, the, look at this final greeting that he gives here in verses 21 and following. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. So where was Philippians written from? Rome, where Paul was in prison for the gospel, where Caesar lived, where the whole apparatus of the Roman government was located. Paul's in prison right there in the belly of the beast in pagan, powerful Rome, right where Caesar lives. Now, remember what he said in chapter 1 and verses 12 and 13? Turn back to to chapter 1 and look at verses 12 and 13 again. He's talking here about his circumstances, his imprisonment for the gospel. And what does he say about it? Chapter 1 and verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, in other words, his imprisonment, I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. So Paul in Rome is being guarded by the imperial guard. This was the Caesar's elite group of soldiers. They're they're the ones guarding Paul. 
But he says it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard. These soldiers know that I'm in prison for Christ, and many others have come to know that. Because as these, these guys were guarding Paul, what they were seeing, this guy is no ordinary. This guy is no criminal. <laughs> this guy is full of love. He's full of kindness. And he's got a story to tell. You see, Paul was sharing the good news of the gospel with these soldiers that were guarding him. And so you had soldiers that were coming to Christ and, and soldiers were passing on the good news of the gospel to, their, to, to other soldiers and, 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 and word was getting out in, in, other, in other parts of, 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 of the apparatus of government in Rome, Caesar's household. The, the gospel was spreading. Now, he comes to the end of the book and, and when, he sent, when he signs off, what does, he, what does he say here? He says, all the saints, that means believers, right? All the believers send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Wow. Wow. So they put him in prison because they wanted to stop the spread of the gospel. But what's happened? It's actually advanced the gospel. You have soldiers, you have people from Caesar's household that are now among the saints. You see, they could put Paul in chains. They could not chain the gospel. D.A. Carson says this, Paul may be in prison at Caesar's pleasure, but the gospel has penetrated Caesar's household. It is important to remember who is finally in charge and how he works. Praise the Lord. The gospel is unstoppable. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the incredible, unstoppable message of the gospel. And, and, and Lord, even in this, this broken world that we're living in, where there's so much sin, so much demonic activity where the, where the enemy sometimes and sometimes in weeks like this just seems to be um, unleashing so many things against you. Lord, help us to remember that ultimately the gospel is unstoppable that you are building your kingdom, that you are building your church, that the very gates of hell will not prevail against, us, against it. And Lord, help us to remember that in our own lives. Lord, I'm sure with the number of people here today and maybe others who are, who are watching this video today or at some point in the future, there are people who are going through hard things in their, in their own lives. Lord, would you grant hope and eyes to see that you're going to take those very things and turn them around and, and, and use them for your glory and for the advance of your rule and reign in the lives of people.
as we just continue to pray, listen, I would ask you, do you know Christ? Do you know that you are in him? Friend, the, the work has been done. God loves you. God has proven his love for you by giving his son for you. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and says the wages of sin is death. It's eternal separation from God. But God loved us so much that he gave his son who came and lived the perfect life that you and I could never live and then died the death we should have died on the cross. And he rose from the dead that all who will turn to him and trust him may have eternal life. Turn to Christ. Turn from trying to do life your own way apart from him. Turn to Jesus and trust him. Welcome him into your life as your Savior and Lord. Christian, we are to be people who radiate the joy of Christ. Whatever circumstances that you're going through today, whatever worries that you have today, whatever fears are gripping your heart today, the command of God's word is to give those things to the Lord. Honor the Lord by trusting him with those things. Whatever that worry is right now, whatever that anxiety is in your heart, you give that to the Lord right now. He can handle it. And you let the peace of Christ flood your heart and your mind. We thank you for the joy of knowing you, Lord. And we pray that our lives would be so rooted and anchored in Christ that there would be a joy, that there, there would be a contentment that transcends I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need and now Jesus and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving Father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. 
If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.